And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the Skype line with us today is Dr. Kevin Sherritt. He is senior pastor of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Rock Tavern, New York. Uh, Kevin, it's an honor to have you on with us today. Great to be here, Dan. Thanks for having me. You know, this is a wonderful time of the year for the Christian church. We've just come through uh, Lent. There's been a number of special services. Many of the churches have had a Monday Thursday service as well as a Good Friday service. And uh, tomorrow we're looking forward to celebrating Resurrection Day or Easter. And it's just a wonderful time um, of reflection and of spiritual nourishment for the people of God. Uh, Kevin, um, let's talk about the resurrection a little bit today here on A Plain Answer. And um, as a pastor, as you look at the resurrection, what are some of the thoughts that uh, immediately come to your mind in terms of feeding the church, feeding the flock, and just glorifying the, the great head and king of the church? Well, there's a cluster of things, Dan, Um, many things, in fact. I think pastorally and even theologically, the resurrection is the linchpin of the Christian faith. It is the central tenet, and uh, the Apostle Paul, for example, is quite clear that Christianity rises or falls with the reality of a historical space and time bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth on the third day after his crucifixion. The way these days are counted, of course, was inclusive. So Friday would be the first day and Saturday the second. Sunday morning would be the third day. So in 1 Corinthians 15, for example, Paul makes it clear that if Christ is not raised from the dead, we are the most pitiable of men. Um, There's something pitiable about the Christian faith that attempts to maintain either some sort of social relevance or some sort of adherence to a moral code or some sort of society of good works um, without this central element of the resurrection of Christ. And so, uh, I think the first thing to see for the people of God as a pastor is the centrality of the resurrection and how, in fact, everything hinges on and is validated by and is bathed in the light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, that's the first thing that comes to mind, that it is utterly central. It's not simply a doctrine among other doctrines or a fact among other facts, but it is, it is the fact that illumines all other facts in the Christian life. Yeah, you brought to mind, uh, last week we were talking with a a man by the name of Rick Anderson. Uh, He's converted to the Christian faith. He had a conservative Jewish background. And the Lord in his life had used Isaiah 53. Uh, He had been warned not to read Isaiah 53 by some in his leadership, and um, on campus, you know, when, when he was a student, and the Lord used that to convert him. So um, this major event of the resurrection of Christ, uh, it really um, is pointed to throughout Scripture, um, or, or Jesus himself is pointed to throughout Scripture, including uh, his death, burial, and resurrection. Is that correct? Yes, that's true. So, when the Apostle Paul, in the, in the passage I mentioned previously in 1 Corinthians 15, when he speaks of Christ being raised, he says that he was raised on the third day in accordance with or in a, according to 
the scriptures. And so there's a certain accordance, a, a correspondence between the resurrection and the Old Testament scriptures. It doesn't mean that you have a, a sort of minute, detailed prediction of the resurrection, but you do have in places like Isaiah 53, um, the, the, the prophetic uh, word of God breathed out by the Spirit saying that not only will the Messiah be a suffering servant, but he will be vindicated and lifted up on high and he'll see the fruit of his, his passion and he will justify many, he will acquit many, save many. And so there is in that passage well known for, for being a vivid foreshadowing of the suffering of our Savior, there is also in it a prediction of his resurrection. And you can see this in other places. Psalm 22, for example, is split into two halves, where the first half famously begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus takes those words upon his lips uh, on the cross on that Friday. And uh, But the second half of the psalm depicts the sufferer, the, the agonized one in the first half of the psalm as risen and vindicated and indeed uh, drawing all the nations to worship Yahweh. So you have that there. You have the story of Jonah in the belly of the whale for three days. You have a direct prophecy of the resurrection of the dead in Daniel chapter 12. And so there is in the whole of the Old Testament this idea that Israel in the form of the servant, is going to have to undergo crucifixion and and resurrection. It's going to have to become a new creation. And that happens in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, yes, it is a resurrection which is, um, while startling and while for various reasons unprepared for perhaps and unforeseen uh, even to Jesus' disciples, it is nevertheless something which is in accordance with the whole story of Scripture, which predicts a Redeemer who will not only bear sin, but will crush the head of the serpent and who will be raised to establish a people in a new creation. The Christian faith uh, often points to the symbol of the cross, and uh, that, that Roman tool of execution uh, was anything but uh, beautiful, and yet it's come to represent um, the crucifixion of Christ and and the beauty that's associated with salvation. Um, I you know the <laughs> the other day we were driving down to uh, to church, Kevin, and uh, um, on the throughway uh, in between the New Paltz and Newburgh exits to the right, uh, kind of part way down, there's this cross, this white cross off on a hill. And it it just kind of struck me that uh, there's a certain glory and beauty to that, and yet there's a terrible ugliness at the same time. Can you talk to us just briefly about the cross a little bit? Sure. As you mentioned, um, the cross was a hideous way to die, and it was uh, not even to be taken on the lips of a Roman citizen. Um, It was really a form of death reserved for insurrectionists and uh, state criminals, and so it is, uh, it's an instrument of state-sponsored torture, um, and it has become a symbol for Christians of the way to life and the atonement and redemption of the world that was wrought in Jesus Christ. It would be a lot like, um, I, I try to find analogies for this for moderns, and, and, and I've often used the idea of walking around uh, with a necklace you know, around your neck 
where instead of a cross, you had an electric chair. Um, if if people did that, you know, they would look at you quite strangely, right? But yeah. but the, but the cross has that same sort of repulsive effect in the ancient world. But it is a beautiful thing because well, because of the light of the resurrection in which it is bathed. I mean, it would not. It would be nothing other. The death of Jesus of Nazareth would be nothing other than another execution at the hands of the Romans were it not for his resurrection. Seen in the light of his resurrection, um, the cross then becomes a chariot or a kingly throne. He's displaying his sovereign kingly majesty in bearing our sins and the sins of his people away on that cross. So he is triumphing there over sin, over death, or uh, as Paul says in Colossians 2, over the principalities and powers. And so in light of the resurrection, we can see that even in the cross, Christ is doing kingly, mighty, victorious work. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, the body of Jesus, it's, it's truly uh, a human body. Can you talk about that a little bit? And how did that differ? Uh, did that differ from, let's say, Lazarus, who was... Um, raised from the dead. I think what we want to say here is that the risen body of Jesus is a real human body, but clearly it has properties that are not associated with our mortal corruptible bodies. So I think maybe the best way to think about it is it has continuity with our current bodies and then certain uh, fundamental discontinuities with our current bodies. And Paul takes this up in that same glorious chapter on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. He says, speaking of our bodies which are destined for the grave, he says, it is sown uh, a corruptible body, it is raised incorruptible. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. You know, it is sown in, in weakness, it is raised in power. And so there's a, a kind of a relationship in, in the body which dies, uh, that's analogous to, say, a seed which is sown into the earth and then raised as a fruitful, a fruit-bearing tree. Now, Jesus uses the same analogy of his own death. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So, it's a real physical human body, but it is not a resuscitation of a corpse. It's, it's a transfiguration of a dead man. He's raised out of death by the, the mighty spirit of God and transfigured into a, a state of existence of glory, right? Uh, theologically, we call this the state of glory. And he now has a glorious spirit-endowed, spiritually animated body, what Paul will also call a spiritual body, meaning not a ghostly body or a body which is a spirit, but a body now fully animated and controlled and determined by the immortal and indestructible life of God, the Holy Spirit. And so I, it's, it's complicated, but it is nonetheless a real bodily resurrection. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, I've heard you say it before, and I uh, just want to hear you say it again. <laughs> It's something to the effect that in heaven right now, there's a man. Uh, words to that effect. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. I mean, it is certainly not a thought original to me. It's it's really just the classical Christian doctrine of the ascension, 
but if we have a robust doctrine of the resurrection, you know, where, where Christ is, is risen, uh, where he has a glorious body, um, we are waiting, Paul says in Philippians 3, right, for our Savior from heaven who will, who will transform our lowly bodies into conformity with his glorious body, even by the power which he has to subject all things to himself. But in between the resurrection and the, and the appearing or the second advent of our Lord, we have the ascension. And in the ascension, it is a man with a human body, glorified, who ascends to heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God. And I think it's very important for lots of reasons. Um, this takes us a little bit beyond the field of, uh, you know, Resurrection Sunday. But um, if if we don't remember that there is a man seated at the right hand of the Father, if if the humanity of Jesus, if you will, thins out and sort of disappears as he ascends into heaven, meaning from our view, we tend to just think of uh, worshiping a divine Jesus. Um, I do think that ends up distorting the way we think about our prayer and our worship. And uh, I often like to tell people that, you know, you come into worship and you sort of uh, imagine that, you, you know, God is up there and Jesus is up there with him and you're worshiping them down here. But in some ways, and you have to be careful with this sort of visual, imaginative language. But in some ways, folks need to turn Jesus around in their mind's eyes and so that he's facing the Father in our humanity, you know, in our humanity, you know, which bore our sins and has those nail scars in it and yet is transfigured and glorified. And he's our pioneer or our forerunner. He cuts the, the path into the heavenly tabernacle or temple ahead of us and we shelter in behind him and he perfects us and our prayers and our worship and presents them to the father. Uh, you can see this, for example, in uh, Hebrews chapter one, where the risen and ascended Christ appears in the heavenly sanctuary and says, here I am, I and the children you have given me. And in the midst of the congregation, he sings God's praises. So the fact that there's a man in heaven means our elder brother is there and he worships God in the midst of the congregation. Calvin goes so far, John Calvin goes so far as to call Christ on the basis of that Hebrews 1 passage, the chief conductor of our hymns to God. Yeah, that's neat. Um, now, Jesus, just because he has this glorified body, is no less than God himself, right? Yes, he's, he's uh, fully God, and fully man, you know, he has two natures in one divine person. So he's he's God as a man, you know. Now in ascended glory as King and as mediator of the new covenant. But yes, he's fully human, but he is also fully divine. But he, those are he's not two distinct persons. He's one person, and the person is divine. Right. So he, he is not God in a man or God, you know, influencing a man or God filling a man with power. He is none of those things. He is God as a man. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, I'm thinking today also about this, too, is somewhat gruesome, but um, men who go to war 
sometimes um, uh, in in the gruesome act of war, um, their their bodies are are bombed, are are just utterly exploded, destroyed. Um, th- this could be a Christian man who has his hope uh, in heaven, uh, the blessed mm-hmm. hope of seeing his Lord someday, and uh, in a in an instant almost uh, he's uh, he's killed. Um, can you describe for our listeners for that as well as all of us? When we die, uh, we have this um, <laughs> robe of flesh. Uh, certainly it's not uh, a glorified body yet. Can you describe what, what lies in the future for the child of God? Sure. I, I think I'd start by going back to the, the uh, parallels of Paul in 1 Corinthians again. You know, it, the body is sown corruptible. It's sown weak. It's sown mortal. Um, there's a kind of deep frailty and contingency to the body, and it can, it can at least from a physical point of view, completely vanish, right, and, and, and not exist. But our hope is in God, who calls the things, you know, which do not exist as they are, as, as though they were, and who raises the dead, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the living, and the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, Right. Um, and, and so united to the risen Christ, um, our hope is this, that God. So there are two, I guess, let's, let's put it this way. There are two aspects of hope. One is that upon our death, we are, we are immediately with respect to our souls in the presence of God. And we, you know, see him in light and glory, but we are not fully embodied. Right. And in the new creation. So we want to say that the hope of the church is not simply dying and going to heaven. That's an intermediate state. The hope of the church is full bodily resurrection, the reconstitution of a full person, an embodied soul and an ensouled body in a new glorified heavens and earth. That's the hope. And so the ground of the hope is not so much that we can have all the parts or pieces of a human body in a grave somewhere so that God can work with those parts and pieces and reconstitute the body. Because as you pointed out, in many cases, we don't have that, right? Yeah. The, the, the ground of our hope for the resurrection is that God reconstitutes us by his saving, powerful, mighty word, which he has demonstrated in Christ and, and therefore resurrects, if you will, our bodies in a glorious state. Uh, so the continuity, the ground of our continuity and our hope in resurrection is really in God himself. He's the ground of our continuity. Um, and he will, he will ensure that the body raised is the body of the person who died. So for example, in Paul's language in first Corinthians, the continuity lies in the little word. It, it is sown you know, in weakness, it is raised in glory. It is sown a dishonorable body. It is raised in honor and the like. So the it is the body. The body that's sown is the body that's raised because God sees to it that that is the case in his resurrection might and power as the living one. Yeah, it's glorious. Um, Today we're talking with Dr. Kevin Sherritt uh, from Westminster Presbyterian Church in Rock Tavern, New York. This weekend is, of course, Easter weekend and Sunday, the Lord's Day, uh, Resurrection Sunday. Um, Kevin, can you talk a little bit about worship in God's church and um, the fact that we meet together every Lord's Day, every Sunday for worship and tie that back to the resurrection? Sure. I, I think 
you know, there are there are lots of, if you will, powerful evidences and proofs of the reality of the resurrection. But one of them is the the sheer existence of the Christian community in the face of Jesus of Nazareth's execution at the hands of the Romans. And not only the existence of the church, but the fact that the church has from the very beginning worshipped on Sunday morning, the Lord's Day morning, uh, the first day of a new week, because that is when, according to the Holy Scriptures and according to the testimony of the church, um, Christ was raised. So that tells us a couple of things, right? We are worshiping on the very day of the week that Christ was raised nearly 2,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago about. Um, Secondly, the fact that Christ was raised on the first day of the new week is a sign or a pointer to a new order, a new creation. It's the first day of a new week. He, he wasn't raised on the last day of the old week. He was raised on the first day of the new week, uh, really the eighth day. The ancient church fathers used to refer to this as the eighth day, uh, meaning you had a seven-day week. And then the first day of the new week was the eighth day. And so eight became in ancient Christianity, the number of new creation. So his resurrection on the eighth day or the first day of the new week points to the fact that in his resurrection, the first fruits of the coming harvest, of the coming resurrection, of the coming new creation has already been reaped and gathered. Uh, And so it is very important to understand the, the theological, even the sociological significance of the fact that Christians worship on Sunday morning. It's a statement that something has broken into this age, and that is the power of the new age. And and this Sabbath day, Lord's day worship of the Christian church is a sign in and of itself of that resurrection. Yeah, that's helpful. We've got maybe two minutes left uh, today. Uh, we're talking about the resurrection. And uh, Kevin, in your own church, your senior pastor, what kind of things have preceded this, this day, uh, Sunday, uh, Resurrection Sunday, and when will the service of worship be in your church? Well, we'll worship, Dan, at uh, 10 a.m. tomorrow morning at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Rock Tavern. Uh, we observe the an, a sort of an evangelical version of the church year. So we have uh, had a Lenten season, which we don't use as any kind of merit accruing thing, but we use it as a means to remind ourselves of what should always be the case, that we are disciples called to walk in the way of the cross. We did have a Maundy Thursday service and a Good Friday service. Those are delightful commemorations and and, uh, reflections on the night the Lord was betrayed and on his passion and death. And um, that leads us to the celebration of the resurrection this Sunday. Of course, it's true that these things are celebrated all the time in the church. And every week, there's a certain wholeness or seamlessness we have in our relationship to Christ by the Spirit. But churches do need to order their historical lives according to some pattern. And um, we found in our community, as many others have, that uh, an evangelical or a gospel-centered use of the church year is very, is very, very fruitful and, and helpful. Finally, um, Kevin, I, I've known you for many years, and people might say, where did this guy come from? I really uh, would like to know more. Were you always a pastor? Can you share with our listeners? Uh, no, I was not always a pastor, Dan. Uh, I was, uh, prior to being in the pastoral ministry, 
I was an IBMer, which is where I met you. I was an <laughs> IBM, an IBM engineer for many yeah. years. I've been in the pastoral ministry now, I guess, about fourteen years. Yeah, and as many people can imagine, um, you leave a very good salary to become a pastor, and you probably never catch up. So it's it's a big sacrifice, but we're we're thankful that you obeyed uh, the Lord's leading. Uh, in your life and his calling. And it's a very important thing. If someone would like to exchange notes with you, how could they get a hold of you? Uh, They could email me at ksharrot, C-H-I-A-R-O-T, at uh, com. Okay, got it. Well, thank you for joining us today. We've been talking with Dr. Kevin Sherritt, Senior Pastor, Westminster Presbyterian Church in Rock Tavern, New York. Subject has been the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, Dan. It was a joy. Dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer 